the Ministry of External Affairs steps up its responses to reports of hate crimes against the Indian diaspora abroad. Riots in the United Kingdom, vandalism and attacks in Canada. The government also issues strong demarches against the United States and other countries for long visa delays for Indians. How does all of this really impact India's bilateral ties? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. This is episode 82 and we're going to take a closer look at the tricky crossroads between the Indian diaspora and their concerns as well as Indian bilateral diplomacy. So to start with, let's just take a quick look at some of the fault lines that we have seen emerging in the past few weeks. And of course, some of it has really been in the news like in the United Kingdom, where we saw the city of Leicester erupt in days of protests, rioting, vandalism, after what seemed like an India-Pakistan match, cricket match that ended in a clash between fans, turned into a communal brawl that lasted for days. Now, the Indian High Commission in London issued a statement condemning the violence against the Indian community, and particularly the incidences of vandalism at Hindu temples, even reports that the Indian flag had been torn off. Now, this is all very unusual. The Ministry of External Affairs said it had taken up the matter strongly with British authorities, called for action against those responsible, protection for those affected. External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar then met with the British Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, the new Foreign Secretary there, on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly, saying he had shared his concerns about the well-being of the Indian community in UK. The reason why I say this is rare is because, remember, most of those affected were actually UK citizens. Then the East Leicester Police, this is the area where we saw the maximum amount of violence and tension, sent out a number of statements, and you can go to their Twitter site and see the timeline. On their efforts to keep the peace, they called for social media posts in particular to be more responsible, actually tracking some of those social media posts back to groups in India. Even King Charles, the new king of the United Kingdom, summoned a group from the local police representative of, of the Federation of Muslims there, the Hindu community, specifically also members of the Daman and Diu communities in Leicester, remember a heavily Gujarati population there, then speaking at the Conservative Party convention. And this didn't go down very well in India. The Home Secretary herself, Suela Braverman, and she is actually the child of Indian origin migrants uh, who went to Africa and then came to the United Kingdom. And she said that the problem was really newcomers to the United Kingdom and a failure or their failure to assimilate with what was called British, what she called British values, while playing up their identity politics as well as taking advantage of the narrative of multiculturalism. Listen in to what Ms. Braverman said. The unexamined drive towards multiculturalism as an end in itself, combined with the corrosive aspects of identity politics, has led us astray. I saw this when I went to Leicester recently, a melting pot of cultures and a beacon of religious harmony. But even there, riots and civil disorder have taken place because of failures to integrate large numbers of newcomers. Such conflict has no place in the UK. 
were some sharp words over there and certainly there was uh, uh, quite a lot of unhappiness from the Indian side as well over some of those comments. Let's take a look at another area of similar issues that was in Canada. After a number of incidents this year, the Ministry of External Affairs put out a very strong advisory, a first really against what it called a sharp increase in incidents of hate crimes, sectarian violence and anti-India activities in Canada. The MEA said that they had actually approached Canadian authorities to prosecute those responsible, but found that perpetrators of these crimes had not been brought to justice so far in Canada. So a direct attack on the justice system, the police system in Canada. The MEA told Indians to exercise great caution in traveling to Canada, asked them to register with the Indian High Commission and consulates so that they can be helped in an emergency situation. Now, the incidents that the government actually listed there were a number and we've seen a few incidents last year, the year before as well, but in 2022 in particular, they, they listed burglaries at a number of temples, five or six temples, especially in the Toronto and Greater Peel area. Temples being vandalized with what they said were pro-Khalistani slogans, including at the Swami Narayan Temple in, in Toronto in September this year. Then they spoke about attacks on people of Indian origin, again, not necessarily on Indian citizens, but people of Indian origin, including a Punjabi radio host who was attacked in Brampton, allegedly with people wielding axes. This was in August this year. And then there were these incidents of a statue of Mahatma Gandhi being defaced in July. More recently, an allegation that a Bhagavad Gita park sign was vandalized as well, and this was denied by the Canadian police. They said, in fact, that there had been no vandalization of that park sign. And then this most serious, really, incidents of two separate attacks involving Indian students who were killed, including Karthik Vasudev, who was shot dead in Toronto at a subway station, and then Harmandeep Kaur, who was hit with an iron rod and then died. And then even in the US, news is just coming in of a 20-year-old Indian student being murdered allegedly by his roommate at a university in Indiana. It was a foreign roommate from Korea, in fact. However, uh, the MEA has not made any statement here, but we have seen in the last few years the MEA take up incidents of violence and alleged hate crimes against Indian citizens and even against US citizens of Indian origin in America. And we've spoken about this earlier on Worldview. Finally, there was the question, not of the diaspora, but of those perhaps wanting to join the diaspora. These are immigrants, professionals, and students wishing to get visas. A complete shutdown on visas and cutbacks on consular staff, particularly during the pandemic, has created a backlog of gigantic proportions for the US, Europe, Australia, for Indians trying to go there. One that the MEA really took a very stern view of. MEA officials called in or spoke to their counterparts from Australia, from Canada, the Czech Republic, Germany, New Zealand, Poland, United Kingdom and the United States of America. The MEA actually issued two demarches between June and September, asking their missions to increase their visa capacities. Uh, External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar also took up the issue. He called it a nightmare, quote unquote, during his visit to the U US. And where the wait, wait time really for US missions in India for a visa appointment, that wait time crossed 800 days, more than two years just for an appointment. This was particularly difficult to understand given that de the delays were multiple times those in neighboring countries like China and Pakistan, which are quite populous as well. 
With Canada, the government issued a fairly long advisory given that the backlog is of 700,000 applications from Indians after cases, in fact, of suicide attempts by applicants in India, clearly a desperate situation in India. I should add over here that then, perhaps in a tit-for-tat move, the Canadian government also issued a very stern advisory against Canadians travelling to India, telling them to watch out, to not go to certain areas of India, three states in particular they mentioned, definitely don't go to Jammu Kashmir, don't go near the India-Pakistan border except at Waga and so forth. So when you're seeing this kind of reaction, the question really is, what is the impact really on diaspora of diaspora and consular issues on bilateral ties. So let's just take a broader look at how all of these incidents, and these are really seen in the consular visa sections of the Ministry of External Affairs, how do they impact on the bilateral diplomacy that India carries out? The first is that the state of the bilateral relationship is often judged by the treatment of each other's citizens. Even though this correlation is unjust at times, after all, some of the attacks are carried out, most of the attacks are carried out by uh, private citizens or citizens that cannot be caught easily. It is eventually, though, about showing one's own citizens the impact of the government's diplomatic efforts that really shows. India at present, remember, has an estimated population of 13 million non-resident Indians. So these are Indian citizens living abroad and 18 million people of Indian origin. So if, if you add them up, it comes to more than 32 million. And certainly this is a very large population, largest diaspora in the world. And as a result, the impact is greater. Then there is the impact of politics inside India, which has in uh, recent years begun to have an impact on diaspora politics as well overseas wings of the ruling party, the BJP, as well as other political groups exert their influence over diaspora in other countries. We see this particularly when it comes to arranging or organizing Prime Minister Modi's diaspora rallies around the world. And in, in the past, when it has come to elections, governments in the UK and the US have actually complained about what they see as interference by these political outreaches in their domestic politics. And in a previous edition of Worldview, we also looked at the rise of the Indian diaspora uh, leaders in elections worldwide. Then there is the impact of growing communal polarization inside India. Obviously a great worry inside India, but this is also spilt over abroad. And whether it is the Hindu-Muslim tensions we see in the United Kingdom or the Hindu-Sikh tensions we see in Canada, also parts of California, these are, these are really images of what is happening in India. And in some countries, we've even seen social mores or caste divisions, for example, spilling into diaspora politics. More confusion comes from the fact that while many immigrants and their descendants are of, directly of Indian origin, many of them may have actually settled centuries ago in other countries. Most notably, this is the case with indentured labor and others transported to the Caribbean islands, to Africa, Southeast Asian countries, Pacific islands. And it's harder to conflate their issues with those of Indian nationals in these countries or those who have recently migrated. Take also the case of Indians who migrated before partition, before 1947. Are their descendants to be seen separate as Indian descendants or divided into Indians, Pakistanis, and Bangladeshi community. So a lot to think about on these issues. It's not quite as simple as just saying it's a consular matter. These issues then bleed into the visa policies of countries. And as you heard from the UK Home Secretary, who linked violence in Leicester to allowing more immigrants into the United Kingdom. You can say it's an excuse, but that link has been made. 
The confusion also lies in countries that allow immigration, of course. In the Gulf region, for example, even in some countries like Switzerland, where it's virtually impossible to get citizenship, people travel largely on residence and work permits, you don't see so much of this confusion between the diaspora and Indian citizens. India, of course, is by no means the only country to have these issues. The Jewish lobby in Western countries and its lobbying for Israel, Chinese origin citizens in Southeast Asia, as well as United States of America, often are targeted very similarly for being a separatist force or, or a, a certainly a divided loyalty. The impact is also felt on trade negotiations, a major sticking point in trade agreement, FTA negotiations as they're called with the UK, with the European Union, RCEP negotiations that India walked out of is really over the lack of flexibility in these countries on the free flow of labor. Uh, visa issues, especially for the export from India of services, including the IT sector, the health sector, hospitality sector, and others. The fact remains, of course, that India does not offer dual citizenship to its nationals. And while that is the case, it is much more difficult for the Indian government to take up the cause of what it calls the Indian community in various parts of the world without running the risk either of being accused of interference or of the diaspora being accused of divided loyalties. Diaspora diplomacy is best played as a soft power, a force multiplier of India's culture worldwide, not as a symbol of its hard power or even as a lever in bilateral diplomacy between two countries. So we hope we've given you something to think about. We're gonna give you something to read about as well when it comes to diaspora, when it comes to diaspora politics and the links that continue with India. Uh, one book and one author I would recommend is Devesh Kapoor. I've talked about him before, but this book is called The Other 1% Indians in America. He's definitely one of the most comprehensive writers on the Indian diaspora in the US. Uh, then there is of course also by Devesh Kapoor, Give Us Your Best and Brightest, The Global Hunt for Talent and Its Impact on the developing world, it's co-authored by him, and it looks at both sides of that equation of the movement of people. India's soft power, a new foreign policy strategy by Pol Polish scholar Patrick Kugiel, a very, very sort of uh, complimentary look at India's soft power diplomacy. And then, of course, the soft power guru, Joseph Nye, has written the book called Soft Power, The Means to Success in world politics. Now, of course, Joseph Nye focuses on the United States' use of that soft power. There's a set of essays I would definitely recommend called Imaginary Homelands, Essays and Criticism from 1981 to 1991, significant period for Salman Rushdie, who is the author. The Middle Passage by V.S. Noepal really looks much more at his own roots in, uh, in Caribbean. There are a number of books Mr. Bridge Lal has written. One is called The Encyclopedia of the Indian Diaspora. I've spoken about this before, but then there's also Transnational Migrations, The Indian Diaspora, Bridge Lal, William Safran, and I think one other author has written that. There's Routledge's Handbook of the Indian Diaspora, quick read on what you should know about it. And another very complimentary book called Indian Cultural Diplomacy, Celebrating Pluralism in a Globalized World by Paramjit Sahai. This is brought out by ICWA, the Indian Council for World Affairs. In fact, the Ministry of External Affairs has also collated a fabulous list of diaspora books, and you can find it, uh, find all those links to the, the names of those books on this website. We hope you have lots to think about. Certainly not an easy issue when it comes to talking about diplomacy, which can often uh, be easy to put into different boxes, but not when it comes to the diaspora that has lasting links 
with India. That's all we have time for here on Worldview this week from the team. Thanks for watching.